hey, we are in week four of what I still think is going to be a six-week series out of the book of Nehemiah. And if you've been with us throughout this series, you know some of the things that I'm about to say. But if you've missed a week or two along the way, there's some things that you know, I'm going to do today that might leave you kind of hanging. So I'm going to loop back really quickly and try to kind of tie together some of those loose ends so you can follow along through the story as we continue with it today. Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament, and it is the memoirs of a man who lived in, believe it or not, Old Testament times, since it's found in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah was, was born about 600 years before Christ. He was born about 100 years after the Babylonians conquered the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people there. Nehemiah's ancestors were hauled off from Jerusalem to Babylon, and Nehemiah was born into captivity there. And he served in King Artaxerxes' court. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. That meant he was the food and wine taster and the table waiter. So he would taste the food and the wine, make sure that it wasn't poisoned, and then after he didn't die, he would serve it to the king. Sounds like a rotten job, doesn't it? Because everybody knows that back in the day, if you were the king, there was always a plot working against you somewhere. Somebody was trying to take you out, whether it was by poison or by dagger or whatever. And so being the cupbearer might not seem like a great position to hold. But Nehemiah was perfectly positioned by God. Because God had a purpose, a dream for Nehemiah to build, and God needed Nehemiah to be perfectly placed in order for that dream to become a reality. And here's how that cupbearer position plays out in God's perfect plan. See, Nehemiah one day was just kind of hanging out, just chilling, minding his own business, doing his own thing. Might have been summer vacation, I don't know. Actually, it was the fall. And Nehemiah ran into a fellow Jew, a brother of his, who had been to Jerusalem. And he asked this man what the state or the condition of the city of Jerusalem was. And he found out that Jerusalem was really in a bad way. The walls had never been rebuilt after they were torn down and burned down with fire. The temple had only been partially restored. So after a hundred years, the people there, the Jewish remnant in Jerusalem, had not been able to put stuff back together. And because of that, the city was in grave danger. It was wide open to attack at any time. And the Jewish people there were kind of like embarrassed. They were living kind of in the shadows, not wanting to make too much noise. They were not living the, the full life that God had called them to. They couldn't participate in worship fully. They couldn't participate in commerce fully. They were just kind of trying to keep everything on the DL so nobody would come in and kick their tail again because they didn't have the wall. And so Nehemiah hears all of this. He says, man, that's, that's, that's no way for the people of God to be. That's no way for the, the city of God to be. That's no way for the temple of God to be. And Nehemiah's heart was broken and in that broken heart, Nehemiah found the first glimpse, the first glimmer of his God-given purpose. The dream that God had planted in his heart was to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to restore it to its glory for God's glory. Nehemiah, when he had that first glimmer, that first glimpse of the dream, did some pretty wise stuff. 
We've talked about it for three weeks. I'm not going to camp on it. But let's circle back and remember what Nehemiah did. The first thing Nehemiah did was he sat down. Some of us would be wise to sit down when we get an idea of something that we think we would like to do. Because I don't know about you, but I've run off half-cocked and done some half-witted things before because I didn't think about it first. I just ran off and did it. Nehemiah sat down. Then he wept. He says he wept. He poured out his emotions so he could think more clearly. Emotions are a wonderful thing, but if you run off and, and act on emotions alone, especially when they're fresh and raw, I don't know, again, don't know about you. I'm just going to speak from my life, but I'll bet you've had the same experience I've had when you run off and do something on emotions alone. That generally does not turn out well. Nehemiah sat down, Nehemiah wept, and then he says that he prayed and fasted for many days. Praying and fasting is a way to draw closer to God, to rely less on yourself, to rely less on the world, and to rely solely on your God in heaven. Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah fasted. He drew closer to God. He tried to get his heart, his mind aligned with God's heart and God's mind. He wanted to be sure his dream was God's dream. Because if you run off to build your dream and it's not God's dream, you're probably chasing after the wrong stuff. Nehemiah spent four or five months doing all of this preparation before he saw that the time was right to move forward with the pursuit, with the building process of his dream. The doors opened in chapter two. When Nehemiah went to serve King Artaxerxes, the wine and the food, and he came into the king's court, and the king said for the first time he saw Nehemiah unhappy, and it troubled the king so much that he asked Nehemiah why he was unhappy. Nehemiah went, ding, 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 ding. This is it. This is the opportunity I've been waiting on. God, I hope this is you. He launched a little microwave prayer real quick and he started talking to King Artaxerxes about the dream that he had to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the king bought in. The king heard the vision. See, God had fully developed the vision in Nehemiah's mind and he was able to crystallize for the king the vision that God had planted in his heart and the king bought in. And when I say bought in, I mean he like whipped out the checkbook and bought in. Not only did he give Nehemiah the time off, yes, go and, and just tell me, when are you going to be back? But he also wrote letters to the governors that he would have to travel through their lands to give him protection. He, he basically wrote a check to fund the trip. He donated the lumber from his own forest to rebuild the walls and the gates and even to build Nehemiah his own house in Jerusalem. Amazing stuff. Sent an army with him. I mean, it's the same king that said the wall would never be rebuilt. But Nehemiah had a dream, and it was God's dream. And when you move in the dream that God has for you, God moves before you. You do the preparation, but God's already prepared the way. When Nehemiah's heart and mind were aligned with God's heart and mind, it was amazing the way God moved. In chapter 1, God commissioned Nehemiah. He gave him the dream. In chapter 2, God provisioned Nehemiah. He used King Artaxerxes, but it was God's goods that Artaxerxes gave him. Last week in chapter 3, Nehemiah rolls into Jerusalem, and he kind of does it 
on the down low. He, he's not being like full-on sneaky. He's just not like rolling into town with his entourage, all the army and everything that, that Artaxerxes sent with him. And he just wants to check out the scene. So he's got to take everything he's got, all this preparation, the commission, and, and the provision. And now he needs to, to, to make a plan. And to have a plan, he has to have some intel, some, in, some intelligence. He has to gather some info. And as he gathered his info, he saw that what he needed to do was doable. And he went to the people of Jerusalem and he told them what God had commissioned and provisioned him to do. Now, right before he rolled into Jerusalem and right after he started telling everybody what he was up to, we met a couple of knuckleheads. You may remember I called them some naysaying knuckleheads. These guys are, are against what God is up to. They're trying to get in the way of Nehemiah building his dream. But Nehemiah knew that negativity was going to happen. Wherever God's dreams are being built, you can guarantee there will be some naysaying, negative knuckleheads trying to get in the way. And they're going to do it in your dream building, and they're going to do it in my dream building. But Nehemiah knew the dream needed to be built. But he knew that to build the team, to get through the negativity, to go beyond the naysayers, he had to first build a team. Nehemiah did a great job building his team. He cast that vision. He put himself in the same situation as the Jewish people. He had only been in Jerusalem for three days, but he said to them, look at the trouble we're in. Look at the danger we're in. Here's what we can do about it. I have a dream, baby. I have a plan. Here's what we're going to do. Are you with me? And they were with him. And I think about that building of the team and how critical that is in the building of the dream. Not just your individual, God-sized, personalized dream. Your purpose that God has for you specifically, but also God's collective purpose that he has for us, his church. We gotta build a team before we can build the dream. One of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Acts. It describes for us the formation and the early days of the Christian church. This is right after Jesus died, was buried, and then resurrected, and hung out for a while, and taught, and then ascended back into heaven. This is what happened right after all of that. And in the second chapter of Acts, there's a passage of scripture that really I go back to all of the time, and it describes what the church in the early days looked like. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 it's kind of subtitled, The Fellowship of the Believers. Here's what the church looked like. Here's what the team looked like in the beginning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the church, the people. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and from house to house. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
Man, that's what the church looked like 2,000 years ago, and that is what the church looks like today when it functions, when it operates as a team who have locked arms and united together to build God's dream, his collective dream, the church, the only entity that Jesus established, the one that he established to continue the work that he began. Nehemiah knew that to build his dream, he had to build the team. He built the team well because he knew the naysaying knuckleheads were gonna come into play. And at the end of chapter two, we found out the naysaying knuckleheads definitely came into play. And when I think about those naysayers, when I think about those knuckleheads, I know you and I have them in our lives too. You're out there doing life. Whether you're pursuing your dreams, God's dreams, whatever, you're doing life. And there are people who are coming against you and it makes me think about a time when I learned to fish for crabs. I don't know if y'all have ever been down to the coast and fished for crabs. Anybody ever done that? You can go ahead and raise your hands. It's okay. A couple of you have. Yeah, y'all have fished for crabs before. Okay. One of the things I learned fishing for blue crabs in the Texas Gulf Coast, right? You drop a basket down, a little just net basket, tie some chicken meat on it, and you let it hang out down there for a couple of hours. And then you just pull that thing back up. And when you pull it up, the basket kind of like stands up around the crabs and the crabs can't get out of that rascal. And so you get them up on shore and you, you take your crabs out and you can put them in a bucket if you've caught more than one. If you haven't caught more than one and you take one crab, you can put him in the bucket and that crab will climb his way out of the bucket every time. Little escape artists. But if you put two or more crabs in the bucket, as soon as one gets near to the top, one of his little buddies will reach up and grab him and pull him back down again naysaying knuckleheads, dream-destroying people. Crabby people live in your life and in my life, and many times they come in the form of family. Amen? <laughs> they come in the, and you know what? Your family doesn't mean to be a naysayer. They don't mean to be knuckleheads. They don't mean to be crabby with you most of the time most of the time. Usually they're just looking out for you. They're afraid that if you go build your dream, you might stub your toe along the way and get hurt and nobody wants to see you get hurt. Your mom and your dad and your brother-in-law and your other-in-law, they don't want to see you hurt. That's why they tell you that that dream is, is too big. It's too rich for you. But naysaying knuckleheads exist. You know what? We're supposed to treat them the same way that Nehemiah did. Nehemiah gave them the stiff arm. He said, that you have no place in this dream. You have no say. You have no claim to what is going on. You can't tell me what God's called me or not called me to do. I've got a direct line to the big fella, and I'm on his purpose. You stay out. Your enemies, whether they're family and friends or not, your naysaying knuckleheads, your crabby people have no say in your dreams. Just be sure that you're choosing to listen wisely to wise people, that you're getting good godly counsel, and that when that good godly counsel gives you some maybe stop signs, a little hold up and halt, you're not thinking that they're naysaying knuckleheads or crabs in your life. Sometimes God does put people in your life to keep you from doing something stupid. Be sure you're listening to the right people, and be sure that you're giving that Heisman stiff arm to the wrong people, like Nehemiah did. Chapter three, the work begins. This is one of the most telling chapters, I think, in this entire book about Nehemiah's leadership. It's about leadership of self and also leadership of others. And I think Nehemiah was a master 
in the world of leadership. In chapter 3, he chronicles the building of the wall. He talks about who is doing the building and what sections of the wall they are building. And I want to start with the first five verses. Let's read those together. Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work, and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanah. There are some world-class names in here, so y'all just bear with this little redneck guy because I don't know about all of this. They laid its beams, they put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel. Come on now. Made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bayana, not Banana, Bayana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Nehemiah took his commission and he put it to work. He took his provision and he put it to work. He began to build the dream, to pursue that dream in reality. You know what I think is very telling about Nehemiah and about real, authentic, biblical leadership? If you read this entire chapter, every verse, word by word, if you break it down, the one person who was full-on active in this building of the dream from the beginning to the end, Nehemiah, his name isn't mentioned one time in chapter 3. Nehemiah dedicates this chapter to talking about, to identifying, to even praising the men and the women who actually put their hands on the bricks, their trowels in the mortar, their shoulders into the work. The ones who had the sweat of their brow pouring down. Nehemiah, he, he gives them the credit that they deserve. Now that doesn't mean that Nehemiah was checked out. Doesn't mean that Nehemiah wasn't a part of building the wall. He was part of building the dream, like I said, from the beginning to the end, from A to Z. But Nehemiah knew that once he had developed this team, once he had built the team, it was the team who would do the work to build the dream. Nehemiah's place was not necessarily down there in the trenches along the wall, slapping mortar and brick together, uh, uh, cutting you know, timbers and putting them in place and hanging doors. Nehemiah's place was in leadership, and he understood the importance of delegation. Now, I want to talk for a moment about delegation, because as you build your individual, personal dream, God's purpose for you, I believe you'll discover that just like the, the building of the collective dream can't be done by a lone ranger, a, a solo actor, one individual. Neither can your individual dream be built by you and you alone. I find that throughout the scriptures, wherever God called someone to build their dream, to fulfill their purpose, he placed other people around them who participated in the building. And the building goes better when those leaders understand delegation and when they will let go of the detail stuff and let others who are probably better equipped than they are to do that work 
do that work. In the building of Elevation Church, there are people in this room who are far better than I am at a whole bunch of the stuff that has to be done. I don't want to mess with computers. I love them for like email and Facebook and writing a message and it'll save stuff and I can go back and find it later most of the time. But Gavin is brilliant with them and so are some of the rest of you. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I've got enough muscle on me to do the setup work. But the last thing I want to be camped out on thinking about on Sunday morning when God has called me to do the thing I am called to do, which is preach, I, I don't need to be setting up Elevation Church. I'm not above it. Nehemiah wasn't above it. But sometimes there are more specific things that God has called leaders to do. I need to be preparing to preach. Jared comes in on Sunday mornings. He kicks butt and takes names. I just, I'm just going to say this. I mean, that's just plain, simple, southern boy talk for he's real good at what he does, okay? We have a whole group of kids who wake up and get here at 7.30 in the morning to help set up the stage and the children's room and all the signage. Uh, Tanner rolls out and, and wears his grubbies, right, to go grab the signs out of storage and put them in place out on 1171 and all the way up here to set them out there, the banners that we have. Then he comes inside and helps us move chairs, helps Jared. We haul hundreds of pounds. I'm going to go on a limb, Jared. We haul probably a couple thousand pounds. We probably move a ton of equipment and gear up the stairs to our elementary age kids' room every Sunday morning and then back down again when church is over on Sunday. I'm involved in some of this, but to be honest with you, I've delegated most of these tasks away because there are people in this room who are better suited for doing them than I am. You want to talk about something I'm not suited for? Bookkeeping, numbers, finite details, infinite details. There are people in this room who are gifted at that and like doing it, and they can do it as an act of service, an act of worship for the church. Delegation is critical. I'm delegating to the best of my ability, and I'm looking to delegate more because there's a whole lot more going on than meets the eye. When you are building your dream, collective or personal, delegation will be a key player in what you do. You have to get over yourself, get over your pride, thinking that you have to micromanage everything, be involved, hands-on, touchy-feely with every single thing going on and let some other people lead. Believe me, you're glad that Jim is leading worship. <laughs> Y'all don't want to see this brother try to lead. Jim can play. That's Jim's first time to play drums, by the way. First time. Yeah, you don't want to hear what I do when I do that. It's bad. I've messed with that drum before. It's, it's not good. So I'm just saying, some of you are sitting on some skills, some talents, some abilities. Some of you would be phenomenal at laying the bricks and slapping on the mortar, cutting the timbers and putting up the gates, hanging the doors on those gates as we build God's dream that is Elevation Church. And I just want to plant that seed in your heart, plant that seed in your head, and let it begin to kind of germinate and take root. Because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk more about that and we're going to identify some of the opportunities that exist for you to get involved in the collective building, to be a part of the team, locked arms, to do something that is so much bigger than you. Nehemiah's team had locked arms. And Nehemiah delegated well because Nehemiah delegated strategically. If you go through this chapter and read about who built 
and where they built. If we had time this morning, we could do a really cool study of the wall around Jerusalem and what lay where within the walls. And you would find that as Nehemiah delegated to these people to build, like in verse 1, he delegated to Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests who went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. You would find that right inside the sheep gate was where the priests lived and where the priests worked. Hmm, strategic delegation. Nehemiah knew that if he gave those guys that section of the wall, they would build the fool out of that section of the wall because their lives and their livelihood might very well depend on that part of the wall, on that gate, being able to withstand an attack from the enemy. And as he moves around the wall and describes every one of these people, fathers and daughters, men, merchants, all these different groups of people, rulers over little sections of the city, little like sub-governors, all these different folks, when they rebuilt, they rebuilt strategically because Nehemiah delegated to them a section of the wall or a gate or a tower that directly related to their life and their livelihood. Usually they lived right inside that section of the wall. And I think about that delegation that Nehemiah did, that strategic delegation. I think about our commission, our provision, our call, this collective dream. Some of you have the talents and the abilities. Some of you have opportunities to build in ways that are very personal to you, that are fitted to your design, but also maybe even to your geography, where you live, where you work where you play, who you're surrounded by at each and every one of those locations. We'll talk more about that as we go through these next few weeks. I think about that strategic delegation. I, I, I think that Nehemiah did a great job of making his purpose, his God-given dream, his vision, their vision. He aligned their hearts, not with his, but with God's because Nehemiah had done the work to align his heart with God's in the first place when he did all of his preparation. Now he's built the team and he's aligned their hearts with God's heart. He's made God's purpose their purpose. When I think about the purpose, the mission, the vision of Elevation Church, I think about every one of you. I think about myself and my own family. I ask myself all the time, what part of that is personal to me? Elevation Church exists to lead people to live life elevated by knowing Jesus personally, by growing in faith through relationships, and by going to share the love of Christ with others. Knowing, growing, and going. Knowing Jesus, growing in faith, going to share the love of Christ. What of that is personal to me? Our vision, simply stated, is to be the church. Our mission is to lead people to know, grow, and go. Our vision, what we want to become 5, 10, 15, 25, 100 years from now, an hour from now, we want to be the church. We want to live out that Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, ideal scenario of the church. We want to gather in the temple courts, right here, corporate worship, to be taught the word of God, to build one another up, to worship, to praise together, collectively, God. We want to meet 
from house to house in smaller venues out in the community, men's and women's gatherings, small groups, Bible studies, community opportunities to reach out to our neighbors. We want to go and do missions work to feed those that are hungry, to break bread together, to sell off our own possessions if we have to, to provide for those who have a need. That's called sacrifice. That's called loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to be the church. When I think about that mission, when I think about that vision, knowing, growing, going, being the church, what's personal to you about those things? Because if that's not personal to you, then I've not done a very good job of building this team yet. We're not locked arms. We're not unified in our vision. We're not unified in our purpose. God's dream might be built, but maybe it's not being built well. Maybe we're not getting together the bricks and the mortar in the best way. But maybe that stuff is personal to you. Have you ever thought to make it personal? When we talk about knowing, growing, and going, who in your life do you know that is far from God? Have you shared Christ with them? Have you told them your own story about what God has done and is doing in your life? Have you invited them into a relationship so that they can grow in their faith? I mean, that relationship might start with you. Before they can have a relationship with Christ, they might need to see a Christian in their natural environment, doing what Christians do, understanding that we're not perfect, we're just forgiven. That's the only difference between us and everybody else in the world. Being a Christian doesn't make us right, doesn't make life, you know, all rose gardens and puppy dogs and butterflies. In fact, sometimes I think it makes life harder. But we have someone to lean on who can handle all of that, and they may need to see that in you. And they won't see that until you reach out with a relationship opportunity for each one of them. What about that mission? What about that vision of being the church, of loving others as yourself, of loving God first and foremost, each and every day and every opportunity, what of that is personal? Those things are very personal to me. They challenge me. They tell me the mission and vision. Tell me that it's my responsibility to lead. It's my responsibility to lead my family first. My mission starts at home. If I'm not leading my wife and my kids, if you're not leading your family, forget about everything else. Start with the basics. It's my responsibility to lead in my community, my neighborhood, my workplace, my play place, all the things I go and do, the people I'm around all the time. It's my responsibility to lead. It's my responsibility to lead you, Elevation Church, not just on Sunday mornings when we're here, but every day, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's my responsibility to lead. It's your responsibility as well. It's my responsibility to love, to love God and to love others, to love my neighbor as myself. Not only do we have the responsibility, because you share that one as well, but we also have accountability. The Bible tells us there will be a day where we are accountable for this collective dream and for this individual dream, for the purposes that God has placed us in this life to fulfill. We will be accountable. But sometimes I think that the personal accountability, even before God, pales in comparison to the accountability that we can face in this world. And what I mean, and it sounds really crazy, but let me hear me out. I worry about if I don't live my purpose, if I don't fulfill my God-given dream, if I don't go build it and build it well, build it wisely, build it strongly, build it with his purpose, who's gonna miss out? People are dying and going to hell in Flower Mound and Louisville and Highland Village every day. 
God planted us here with the purpose of reaching those two out of three who are far from him, who are not connected through a relationship with him, not connected to the church, and not connected to God eternally. And every time one of those people passes from this life, every time one of those people goes through the trials of this life that that song we sang a little while ago talks about, and they do it without Christ, and they do it without a team, a church around them, I have failed my mission. And the accountability that I'll have before God, that's somewhere in the future. But the accountability of that person dealing with that stuff, that's right here, right now. And when I look around, when I drive through this town, when I step out of my front door and look up and down my street, I know that real life is happening to real people right now. Nehemiah told the people in Jerusalem, Look at the trouble that we're in. Look at the danger we are in. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in trouble and we are in danger right here, right now. And it doesn't look like it when you get out in that community because people drive nice cars, wear nice clothes, and live in big houses with air conditioning and food in their refrigerator. But those things are temporary and they really don't count past the mist and the vapor of this life. People are dying and going to hell, and it's our commission to reach them with the gospel of Jesus, with the eternity-altering, life-changing message of salvation by grace through faith. It's our mission to lead them to live life elevated by knowing Jesus personally, growing in their faith through relationships with us. And by going, locked arms, united, one purpose, one heart, one mind, going and sharing that love, that message with others. If not you, who? Not you, who? If not you, who? If not us, Elevation Church, can we count on the church across the street or the church around the corner or the church down the way to do what we're called to do? No. They have their own dream, their own vision, their own call and purpose by God. There are people that only we can reach. I sincerely believe that. There are people that only you can connect with. If not us, who? And if not now, when? I mean, can we just put the dream on the back burner? Can we just let it simmer for a little while, hold I don't know, y'all ever seen those little warming drawers in the kitchens? I mean, we did a kitchen remodel a while back, and I wanted one real bad, but we couldn't afford it, so we don't have it. But it's a really cool thing. It's a little drawer that pulls out, and you can set food in it, close it, and it just, like, holds it warm. So you can prepare it in advance for a party, and I kind of let it hang out and stay hot. And then when everybody gets there, you know, you're not all sweaty from cooking, and you just pull it out, and it's like, boom, there it is. Martha Stewart, I'm perfect. Woohoo! Can we do that with the dream that God has called us to build? Can we put it on hold, put it in the warming drawer, and let it just incubate for a little while, stay bubbling hot? No, I don't believe we can. I believe God has called us for such a time as this, for such a place as this, for such people as these. I believe our dream is now. I said last week the building of the wall had a deadline. It was a short-term project. It had a, an end date. The building of Elevation Church has no end date. I don't foresee, I don't forecast a date when we will stop building. But you have a deadline. I have a deadline. We have a dream to build. We have a church to build. We have a community to reach. It's time to lock arms and come together as that team to dig deep 
and to build strategically, to build strong, to lead people, to love God and love others, to be that Acts 2 kind of church. We must do it. We have to do it. We're responsible to do it. And we're accountable for it. But the truth is, there's an option. There's an option. You can, you can opt out. You can do like the men of Tekoa in verse 5, whose nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. God gives you the ability to choose to be on his team, to lock arms or not. God gives you the ability to decide, will you embrace the dream? Will you build the dream? Or will you just let it die in the warming drawer? Just slowly overcooking or drying out and withering away. You can choose not to. I don't know about you. I don't want to shirk this work. I don't want to push away. I don't want to look up and down my street through my places of recreation or work. I don't want to look into the eyes of other people that live around me and know that they're far from God, that they're missing out on their own individual, personalized, God-sized dream because they don't have people around them to build the dream with them, that they're missing out on the collective dream because they're not plugged in to what God is doing and how God is moving in this community right here, right now. I don't want to be accountable for that. I, I'm responsible for that, and I want to answer God's call. I want to go out and do something about the very real dangers, the very real problems and troubles that we are in right here in this community right now. People are dealing with divorce. People are dealing with addiction. People are dealing with parenting problems. People are dealing with depression, loneliness, feelings of inadequacy. People are dealing with the whole question of what am I here for? What, God, is the purpose? If you're there, God, there are people crying out this morning for that dream to become a reality in their lives, for somebody to bring them some good news. Jesus brought the good news, and he entrusted it to us. Let's go out and be the church. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that each of us would be like these men, these women, these sons and daughters, these fathers and mothers, these priests, these merchants who went out and built the wall around Jerusalem. When Nehemiah came and called them, when he shared the dream, the vision, the purpose, the passion, they bought in. They got on the team. They locked arms and they went to work. God, may we answer your call this morning. May we lock arms, unite together under the purpose and the vision that you have given us to be your church, to lead people so that they know you personally, so that they grow in their faith by having a relationship with you and with us, and that we all go together and share your love with others. God, I pray that we would take up our tools, join this team, and that by us doing so, 
you will add daily to those being saved in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.